Today's show is brought to you by SoFi. Imagine a world where employers can contribute to student loans, sort of like a 401k match. Luckily, that world is now a reality. Learn more at sofi.com slash at work. This show is supported by Willis Towers Watson. They decode cybersecurity by looking at risks across your company's people, capital, and technology. Willis Towers Watson assesses your vulnerabilities, protecting you with the best-in-class solutions and helping you recover quickly from future attacks. Details at willistowerswatson.com slash recode. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as Steve Bannon's next boss, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. And while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is Congressman Ro Khanna, who represents California's 17th District. Representative Khanna is a Democrat who took office in January after defeating the incumbent Mike Honda, another Democrat, last November. He previously served under President Obama in the U.S. Department of Commerce and the White House Business Council. Congratulations, Representative Khanna, and welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks. I'm a fan of the podcast. Thank you. Do we have to call you sir or what? Roe is good. Roe is Silicon good. All right. Valley. Thank you. I was going to do that anyway. But I will call you Representative Khan every now and then. And welcome, too, to Tony Rahm, Recode's senior editor of Policy and Politics, who's come here from Washington, D.C. and New York, where he covers all kinds of things for Recode. Hey, Kara. Thanks for coming by. Yeah, thanks for having me. You came east from Washington and New York, right? <laughs> I did. I did. But I got to spend some time at Sonoma before yeah. I came here. So, well, you know, it's better in California, in case yeah. you're interested. So let's start off a little bit about your winning and what happened and how you were sort of backed by tech, I think people think so. And that's a good and bad thing, right? Like the tech people love you, but I I hear a lot of praise from a lot of the tech leaders about you. Well, it it was obviously uh, an honor to have a lot of their support, but I lost the first time, as you remember. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the uh, reason I lost Mm -hmm. is uh, that there wasn't a sufficient sensitivity even in my own district, to people who had been uh, left behind, who right. weren't participating. And, right. and that was the big change. Uh, and really, I grew as a candidate and uh, uh, really talked about not only the benefits of technology, but some of uh, the challenges with how we get more people involved in the tech economy. And I think that's why we won the second time. Mm-hmm. And in terms of you had worked previously for the Obama administration, had been in politics. Give your background a little bit for people who don't know. Well, uh, my parents were immigrants. Mm -hmm. uh, They came in the 1960s. My dad was a chemical engineer. My mom was a school teacher. I was born in Philadelphia uh, and uh, grew up in uh, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. I went to public school. Uh, My grandfather was my uh, inspiration in politics. He he had served uh, four years in jail during Gandhi's independence movement. And Mm -hmm. when I was young and visited, he would tell stories of that. And that gave me an interest in uh, just the impact that politics had. And then I went to uh, Chicago for for college, and Obama was a uh, professor there. He was running for the state senate, and uh, coincidentally, I had knocked on some doors uh, for his uh, campaign. And then when I was out, uh, moved out to the Bay Area after after law school, and when he won, the the coincidence of having worked on his first campaign and some of the work I had been doing led to to going and serving in his administration. Mm-hmm. And what did you do there precisely? I was uh, in, a, uh, involved in overseeing our domestic offices uh, for manufacturing and uh, helping export. So we would work with small and medium-sized manufacturers mm-hmm. and help them uh, get access to foreign markets. 
uh, think, see what they needed to succeed in, in a global economy, how they could be more competitive, how they could sell more of their products uh, abroad. Sure. And speaking of working in government, I want to ask you a little bit about the Trump administration. Uh, you know, we're fast forwarding a bit from your background here, but you, you worked in the Commerce Department. What do you think these days when you hear about all these vacancies uh, at major government agencies like your uh, former employer many years ago? Well, I think the way of governing is so different than the way of campaigning. I mean, Trump campaigned on bringing manufacturing jobs back, right? So you would think one of the programs that he would care about would be the Manufacturing Extensionship Partnership in commerce. The whole purpose of the Manufacturing Extensionship Partnership is to help manufacturers compete in a global economy so that they can bring manufacturing jobs into the United States. Turns out the Heritage Foundation budget that he's going on cuts the Manufacturing Extensionship Partnership. It's a $200 million program. I don't even know if Donald Trump's aware of it. And so these uh, programs uh, actually make a difference. And if he wants to have any shot of even living up to some of his promises, uh, he needs to understand uh, what's there in government, uh, what he can improve, what he should uh, fund. Sure. So, you know, you were hailed as the voice of Silicon Valley uh, when you were ultimately elected. Well, I don't you know like if that. anyone can be the, the voice of <laughs> well, Silicon Valley. Well, you were one of them at the very least. You were hailed. <laughs> well, you uh, represent. So yeah. Like yeah. Like it or not, you're there. Uh, so be the voice of Silicon Valley right now. What's the grade you give this administration on its approach to science and technology issues? Is an, an F, a D, D minus? No, don't give D minus is an F. Yeah. No, just yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, he doesn't believe in uh, climate change. He's not uh, talking about renewable energy and the, and the jobs that are going to be created. You know, ARPA-E, one of the big misconceptions is people think that was an Obama administration. Sure, and RPE, just for folks who maybe so, don't know, is the know, Energy Department's, uh, you know, innovation hub. Innovation hub uh, lets fund... Uh, cutting-edge research on being a leader in renewable energy. Uh, President Obama, who I'm very proud of because I worked for him, expanded that program. But that was actually a George W. Bush initiative at the end. You know, these the, the programs that uh, some of the things he's cutting are uh, programs that have been bi- bipartisan consensus. So, and there's, there's no sense uh, in what he's going to do for the jobs uh, of the future. And, uh, you know, here's someone who made his whole reputation on The Apprentice, you would think he would care about apprenticeship programs. Mark Benioff is out there saying, let's do $5 million, $5 million apprentice uh, programs, uh, $5 million apprenticeships across the country. You know, those are the ideas that you would think he would jump on, but he hasn't. So there's just been no engagement either on climate change or on uh, what the jobs of, of the future are going to be or how to prepare folks well, for We're going to get to more Trump in a little yeah. bit, but I do want to get to what you represent because yes. I think one of the things that happened is being anti-Trump is pretty much a thing, but it's not the thing. Like, right. it's what we want to do. So when you were running for office, what, what was your thought of what you should accomplish as the representative from Silicon Valley and from this area? My thought was that our country is going through a profound transition from an industrial age to a digital age that the gains of that transition have gone to a few people who are creative, brilliant, at the right place at the right time, but there are a lot of folks uh, who have been left out in that transition. Eric Bridgeoffelson has written a a brilliant book, Race Against Machine, about uh, how uh, technology is transforming society and how we need to prepare for that so that the the gains are uh, more evenly uh, distributed. And I said Silicon Valley needs to answer the call to service, needs to think not just about what's narrowly in our interest, but how we can contribute to making this transition successful for everyone. 
And when you talk about that idea of transition, you know, it's not the greatest message for Silicon Valley because I think part of the election was about people who were left behind. Absolutely. You know, a group of people, there's a third of the country who loves the future and benefits from it, and some of them quite substantively. There's a group of people who are in the middle who understand the future, understand it's important, want to be part of it, but are nervous, I think, very and justifiably nervous about their jobs. And then there's a section of the country that just isn't benefiting, doesn't like it, doesn't, isn't part of it, and has definitely suffered from it. Um, and that, those are all in your constituency, too. You know, it's not just Kansas or right. Kentucky. It's also within where you represent. How do you appeal to all those groups? Because you have all those people in your own, I don't want to say rule, because you're not a ruler, but you know what I mean, under your constituency. Well, one is to be sensitive to what you said, that the, the gains of technology haven't just been a benefit for everyone. Uh, I was in Appalachia in uh, Eastern Kentucky in Paintsville. Mm-hmm. They call that area Silicon Holler. Holler I know. Yeah. They call everything Silicon something. Uh, I, I which, which, is, which shows the aspiration, right? People, people still have some aspiration of being affiliated with technology. You know, when right. John F. Kennedy went to McDowell, West Virginia in the 1960s, coal miners were chanting at him, Mr. Kennedy, go to the moon, go to the moon. So there's mm-hmm. this fascination in our country with, with technology. People want to participate. Uh, but they have not uh, often had the opportunities. We have not had, as you know, uh, venture capital goes to three states, California, mm-hmm. Massachusetts, yep, New York. There's right. a, a lack of access to capital. There hasn't been uh, the development of uh, the skills and, the, and, and universities. One of the best ideas I've heard is how do we expand universities across this country so that uh, now we don't have company towns, we have university towns. How do we create more uh, energy uh, around uh, and jobs around universities across the country. They haven't uh, had a chance to reconsider labor markets. What are the are the people are the skills they're getting actually employable, and are employees taking a chance on non-traditional places uh, to hire? But I do want to make one case for uh, when I was in Paintsville that that gave me hope and optimism. Folks there said that uh, folks there said that there is a possibility for technology actually to connect them into the marketplace in a way there hasn't been before. So in the past, you they could be coal miners or nurses or doctors, or they were said, leave Appalachia. Well, they don't want to leave Appalachia. I mean, do people here want to go live in Appalachia? No. Well, they find the same as offensive to say, uh, just go move, go move somewhere else. We don't want to move. Why would they want to move? They're very proud of uh, their communities. And they said, well, maybe technology is now going to allow us to access work without having to move and maybe not even needing a four-year degree. So I think we have to figure out how can technology be empowering uh, in, in allowing people to live their aspirations uh, in addition uh, as, a, as an alternative narrative to technologies to just taking your jobs and displacing. Well, when you think about that, why is it Silicon Valley's job to do that necessarily? Because, you know, you don't say, oh, Wall Street better get in there and help the coal miners. Or, hey, Hollywood's not doing its share, fair share. They live in Hollywood. The financiers live in New York. No one's calling for that. Like, it's a great it's point. A, um, first of all, I, I don't think uh, Wall Street's saying we're going to change the world. and, ma- and That's right. That's right. Because they're not arrogant and do-gooders. <laughs> and, is it arrogant do-gooders? Yeah, pretty much. And right. I think part of it is re- learning the, revo- the lessons of the Luddite revolution. I mean, Luddites get a bad name. Mm-hmm. But Luddites weren't... They deserve a, a bad name. Well, but they weren't just opposed to technology. They were opposed to uh, they, they looms, were, right? They they were, were, well, no, they were opposed to looms that... Uh, were what they said deceitful and and, and labor conditions, Mm -hmm. and they were opposed to a lack of uh, any sense of 
concern for their future. Mm -hmm. And it was an economic and political uh, movement as mm -hmm. much as it wasn't just an anti-technology movement. A lot of them were actually sophisticated folks who understood the looms. And so the question is, uh, do, do we want to, as a country, have a, a transition from an industrial to a digital age that's going to include everyone, or do we want to be divided? My view is people in Silicon Valley have uh, an understanding of some of the transformation that's uh, taking place, and they ought to be part of a political conversation uh, that is helping uh, think about how more people are going to participate. So be that they're responsible for that. I mean, I know they're just something that I've been suggesting. You're responsible for some. If you're, say, Uber or Tesla or Apple or Google doing self-driving cars and you're going to eliminate millions of jobs, you are responsible for figuring out what to do about that. Do you think that? I do. I think you're responsible as you're a citizen of this country. I think part of the election was not about uh, people being just afraid of the future, though I agree that's part of it. I think there was a sense of, do folks care about America first? Do we care about the country? And I think that, that we're ultimately, we're citizens first. And uh, that one of the worst things I had read after the election was, oh, California should secede or Silicon yeah, we'll Valley talk, we'll should secede. We'll get to that. Yeah. Should secede. I mean, how arrogant. There's so many people who built America, much greater in sacrifice and contributions at Silicon Valley. There are people who died for this country. There are people who marched for civil rights in this country. There are people who marched for women's suffrage in this country. Uh, just having coming along for, and, and having massive exits doesn't mean that somehow we built America. We have uh, helped make a contribution. Mm -hmm. But we ought to look at all the other people who have answered the call to service. And now there's a moment in time in our country where they really need uh, the Valley to step up and answer the call to service. And so it's about uh, our uh, obligation as citizens, not uh, saying, okay, corporations have to do this. It's it, They're citizens first. And that's, I think, that would go a long way. Sure, just to drill down on that point, do you think that the executives of these Silicon Valley companies recognize their obligations? Are they empathetic to the plight of you know, the factory worker who may or may not lose their job as the result of some of the things we're talking about now, whether it's self-driving cars or whatnot? Or how do you get them that way? Too? Well, I, I think the election was a wake-up call. And that, in, in that sense, uh, I, I'm hearing more and more of that conversation. I was just talking to this uh, an executive at Flex, which is in Michigan, and they are hiring 250 folks in Detroit. Uh, the, the, the software company basically is a cloud computing company that allows manufacturers to be more productive because they allow manufacturers to uh, be, uh, use, be on the cloud and just, not, in time. just in time and not just have so much uh, mm -hmm. of an IT uh, staff and can hire more folks. That's an example of a technology that's helping create jobs in Michigan. So what else can we be do doing to, uh, to think about the talent, uh, the, the uh, uh, extraordinary innovation that exists uh, uh, outside America. I, I was interested in, I mean, Jeremy Liu, who you had on your podcast, was talking about how he's on a flight and uh, going across America because talent isn't just concentrated here in Silicon Valley. So, so, I, yeah. so when you look at someone like Mark Zuckerberg, who's been on this, like, not but sort of running for president tour, whatever we're calling <laughs> his, like, you know, uh, a visit to some counties well outside of Silicon Valley. Have you notice there's also always livestock involved. There's always livestock. Yeah, there's it's always interesting. Livestock and photos. It's we'll a, get into it's a that whole, later. It's a, right. it's, a, it's a whole operation. But when you look at that, is that an example of a tech executive being empathetic? Or is that, you know, Silicon Valley condescension? Is that saying, oh, you know, we're going to go see how the rest of the world lives and, you know, Maybe sit we'll... in a diner and have coffee with the people. Well, I, so I'll tell you, when I went to Appalachia, I went at the invitation of Hal Rogers. Uh, it Congressman. was a Congressman Hal Rogers, uh, who has been there for 30 years. 
who wanted uh, me to come because the coal miners' kids who were being trained on Apple and iOS software for Google was that was in my district. But one of the things that it's it, it's not I don't think that somehow we're going to have to have this a Silicon Valley goes out and uh, saves America is it will backfire. Right. I think the bigger issue is how do you get the the local communities they want to participate in the future. You could have had the same roundtable. I, I kid you not in. Paintsville, Kentucky, about the transition from an industrial to digital age, how we're going to take advantage of it. You had educational leaders wanting to participate. You had businesses saying, we're going to create jobs. We're going to create apprenticeship programs that pay. And the job of uh, the Valley should be to support these programs, uh, to, in, to look at investing in some of these programs, not to say, okay, we're here to tell you what to do or we're here to, 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 to teach you. It's got to be more partnership, empathy, uh, and, and, a, and an understanding and concern about, about the country's uh, future and everyone participating. Do you see that concern? I, I was listening to an interview with Sam Altman last night uh, at the Commonwealth Club, and he was talking about his trip to visit 100 Trump people. Like, he had to, like, drive to the Midwest, apparently. Although the Trump they're, they're, people in Fremont. Oh, can, I know that. Can, I, get it. The, I get it. <laughs> and the, the, the moderator said, oh, so you got in your self-driving car that's ruining jobs, essentially, and drove there <laughs> to the diner to visit them. But, again, what, what uh, Tony was saying, how do you get them? I know the penny has dropped, but what actually can they do? And how do you get them to do that as, as congressman? Well, one, they can uh, think more broadly about where talent is in this country, where uh, and where and their obligation uh, to consider communities that have been uh, left out of the uh, technology revolution. Now, there's. Let me give you a concrete step, and I'm I'm not singling any one company out for as good or bad, but this Google Howard initiative. They're apparently they're going to have 23 faculty members from historically black colleges spend the summer at Google. That strikes me as a concrete step that's going to not just be like, okay, we're doing something for a photo op, but okay, we're going to uh, get folks. We understand there's a need. We understand uh, that that we have to do better. In diversity. So, and, in diversity. And so it's the diversity question has to be looked at broadly. There are uh, African-Americans who are underrepresented. There are women still who are underrepresented, of course. There are Native American community. I'm the outreach liaison to the Native American community. Someone was telling me about Northwest Washington. My heart almost broke. They said the town there has to stop using the Internet when the high school has to take a, a exam, a state exam, because there's not enough bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Right. So what is the empathy there? And then to, to large parts of rural America that, that, that have suffered for that lack of investment, the lack of uh, institutions of preparing them for the jobs of the future. So I think that the part of it is a is an empathy. The second part of it is a is a is a sense of answering the call of of patriotism. It it can't be okay. We're Silicon Valley. We've succeeded. We're here to tell you what you need to do. With the rest of America. Right. It's got to be. Uh, we're Silicon Valley. We're so grateful that we live in a country that has allowed us this freedom to, at the age of 35, make a billion dollars, because mm-hmm. this is actually not possible in any other country. And by the way, there are a lot of people who uh, died for this country to give us this shot. There are a lot of folks who marched in this country to give us this shot. We're so grateful that we're taking the 2% benefit of the American story, the 98% was created by other parts. And by, you know, it's our time to give something back to this country because we've been the beneficiaries of this country. But, Roe, they created Instagram. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, and, and people say, well, why can't politics 
It takes five years to do a company. Yeah. Why, why can't we do that in politics? I was like, are you kidding? My grandfather spent 30 years in jail against the British. Mm-hmm. You think that was harder or founding a company? Come on, give me a break. Right. Let's have a sense of perspective. I love the in- innovation. I love the, 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 the genius, but it's the, it's the political system and, and the country that's given you that shot. So I think it's just a, a humility and an understanding of, of the country. And I think that's what... Um, you know, I disagree with everything that Donald Trump uh, almost stands for, but that's what he evoked with Reagan and, and the sense of American patriotism. Now, his definition of American patriotism is a very narrow definition, a very parochial definition. i rather we have a more expansive, open definition of American patriotism, but we've got to start talking about the country as larger than any, any uh, one place. All right, when we get back, we're going to talk about California issues first and then federal issues that you're dealing with. There's a ton of them around privacy, around net neutrality, around and, and what your role is and what you think you represent. And then we really would like to get into what how we operate within the Trump parameters. He is changing faster than anybody, I think. The ground yeah. is moving rather quickly. Um, but we want to get to that when we get back. And we're here with Representative Ro Khanna, who represents essentially Silicon Valley. Today's show is brought to you by Audible, which has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. And you can listen to all that wherever you are thanks to Audible's free apps for iOS, Android, and Amazon devices. It's not a streaming or rental service. With Audible, you own your books. When you become an Audible member, you get a free book every month, plus a 30% discount on all regularly priced audiobooks. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash decode, download a title free, and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash D-E-C-O-D-E. That's audible.com slash decode and get started today. I'm listening to American Lion right now about Andrew Jackson. Hey, Rico Decode listeners. You're about to listen to Kara Swisher. But when you're done with that, come on over and listen to Control-Walt-Delete to hear from the other founder of Recode, Walt Mossberg. I'm Neil Patel, and every week on our podcast, Control Walt Delete, Walt and I discuss the week in tech, the news, and importantly from Walt, how the history of technology affects its future. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Control Walt Delete. We're here with Representative Ro Khanna, who is the congressman who represents the Silicon Valley area. It's a very wide constituency, but it's a lot of the biggest tech companies in the world. So he is both a creature of tech and also someone that's got to think about what tech is doing to this country. We'll get to that later. But right now, we want to talk a little bit about concerns of California. So why don't we start talking about how you, you're not the governor, you don't, you know, you're not a local politician, uh, but you, you have to be concerned about California itself and what it, what it needs uh, from the federal government. So can you talk a little bit about what you're doing in there? And we started, let's start with the, the exit, Cal exit. You are against this, obviously. And we obviously no. don't have enough guns to do that very well, although there's a lot of guns in California. But what do you think are the most important issues for California in the federal system right now? Well, the reason I was so opposed to the, the exit is, is it was, I well, couldn't besides think, it being inane, but it, go ahead. But, but, but I, I couldn't imagine a worse response yeah. after this election. We're this taking whole, our marbles and going it, home. Yeah, and, and, and a total lack of uh, understanding of how much California's success is rooted within the larger American experiment and America's success. But I think there, there are, uh, of course, needs that California has. I mean, the Caltrain electrification is a, is a huge need. It's a, it would allow for increasing the capacity of Caltrain by 50%. We need more public transport in Silicon Valley. Uh, and it's being blocked uh, by the uh, uh, by the Republicans in California in the administration. 
Uh, we need funding for uh, uh, infrastructure in, in, in the state. Uh, we have uh, needs in terms of our uh, community colleges, expanding our, our UC system. We haven't built a new, new UC for, for years. Uh, how do we make uh, college more affordable? So there, there are a lot of uh, state issues uh, that uh, require both leadership with the governor and, and legislature and also for the federal government. What's your number one thing you're working on for California itself? Well, right now it's this Caltrain electrification because it goes right through my district. It's, uh, uh, it would be uh, catastrophic to, to lose that funding, uh, which would really help alleviate some of the traffic, uh, help uh, provide greater capacity, especially as campuses are expanding. And Anna Eshoo has been terrific on the issue as well. The big fight in Washington uh, just a few short weeks ago was over privacy. The Trump administration has rolled back rules uh, put in place by the Obama administration that would have required an AT&T or a Verizon to get your permission before selling information to advertisers. You voted to keep those rules. Talk a little bit about why you voted that way and why so many Republicans in Congress didn't share your view and wanted to scrap the FCC's efforts. Well, to me, it was just basic common sense. If you're using the Internet, you shouldn't have companies be allowed to use your data and sell that data. Companies profit. you can't out, opt out of either. A company who can't opt out of it. I mean, you, if, obviously, if you give your consent, which is all the, the rules uh, said in the Obama administration, that you had to affirmatively give your consent to do this, uh, that's one thing. But people don't – people already – they have such a suspicion of institutions, right? There's this suspicion of big government, of bureaucracy, of corporations – why would you want people who feel already disempowered by the, the overwhelming forces of the system to, to think now, okay, now companies can actually take my personal data and profit off it? It makes absolutely no, uh, no sense. And I, 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 there's some areas where I can say, okay, Republicans are thinking they have a free market vision or some vision. I really don't get this. I mean, other than that they have uh, internet service providers who are uh, potentially important uh, constituencies, Verizon, Comcast, AT&T. So, you know, you're a web user, right? You watched this vote play out. You're super unhappy with it. Is there any hope at all for any sort of uh, action on Capitol Hill in terms of privacy, or is it completely shot dead right now, given the fact that Republicans control Washington? No, I think there is hope, because the, as we were talking be, before the, the podcast, I mean, there were a number of Republicans who defected. I think if the bill hadn't been jammed through, if it had taken 30 more days, the online advocacy... Uh, would have actually made a difference. Do you, do you think that your peers in Congress know these tech issues well? Do you think that they understand how voters feel about things like privacy? Or do you find that there's still a great knowledge gap there between, you know, what folks in Congress think about Silicon Valley stuff and, you know, what you know as somebody who's kind of lived and breathed in this industry for a bit? I would say I, I think it's getting better, but I think there's a much bigger disconnect. I, sometimes I describe being in Congress as like being in Versailles, like all the energy is mm -hmm. outside mm -hmm. and we're debating what committee chair resolution on X, right? I mean, the energy of the country is on social media. It's in podcasts. It's on uh, people protesting in outside town halls. And I don't think Congress, I don't think a lot of folks in Congress get that. I, they're still so caught up in the inside game of politics. Uh, it's one of the things that, that uh, Bernie Sanders or whatever, you know, they, they understood. And I think that's the bigger issue. How do you connect with where people are now uh, consuming political news? And when you think about that, the, the idea of what they're doing or not doing, getting back to the privacy issue, one of the arguments that the telcos and others made was that Google and others are freed up and they're not. I think the argument back is that they you cannot use Google. I mean, a lot of people 
say they can't, but they right. can. They certainly can. Or you cannot use these different services. How did you answer that? Because people would say you're a creature of Google or the companies that benefit. Well, I've said that there had to be, there should be greater protections of privacy with Google. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think, I mean, I agree there's a distinction, but mm-hmm. I think we need an Internet Bill of Rights that protects consumers from the ISPs, but also from from Google and Facebook. So it's not that I think... Uh, uh, but that that argument is saying, okay, we need more protection. So the answer is, well, let's just have no protection. I mean, right. the, 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 if the Republicans have said, look, we need an, a bill to equalize this, and Google and Facebook uh, should also be uh, subject to these regulations, I would vote yes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So when let's move to uh, net neutrality too, because that's the next big thing. Are you going to be involved in that? That's something that's very near and dear to the hearts of companies. That are dead in your district. I've, I've been hugely involved in that. I've, I've already criticized some of the uh, initial steps in uh, rolling, uh, rolling it back, but it's important to understand why this, this matters so much. I mean, it's not just about freedom of speech on the internet. Even the Republicans now on a compromise bill by Thune are saying, okay, look, we... Senator John Thune. Senator John Thune who say, okay, we, we get that the internet shouldn't uh, discriminate if you're a Hillary supporter or a Trump supporter, it should have equal access. The problem is the economic argument. They have uh, they have no problem allowing incumbents uh, with these big companies to discriminate against other companies from accessing the internet, charging smaller companies more money. Now, if you do that, you're basically not just stifling innovation, but you're having greater concentration of economic power uh, in the hands of a few. Mm-hmm. And that's been the problem on Wall Street. It's been the problem with airlines. It's been the problem with telecommunication companies. Why would we want the internet to become subject to monopolistic behavior and anti-competitive behavior? And so net neutrality is really uh, a pro-competitive, pro-innovation policy. Uh, and uh, you know, I will make, uh, make that argument. Sure. Now, the FCC is starting to consider its replacement rules. Uh, Chairman Najee Pai has, you know, explored a new plan that would essentially make it voluntary. You know, if you're an Internet service provider, you would commit in writing that you're going to adhere to some net neutrality principles. And if you don't do that, then the feds can you know, slap you from deceiving consumers. Is a voluntary plan really the approach here? No, absolutely not. I mean, we need to keep the Internet uh, a place which is going to be uh, accessible to any uh, individual or any company without being charged higher prices, or you're going to have uh, people swallowing up smaller companies and smaller companies being kept out. What do you expect from internet users here? I remember, you know, a few years ago when we were talking about Chairman Tom Wheeler and his open internet order that you know folks freaked out online. We even had John Oliver segments, you know, blasting him uh, right. for for his approach to net neutrality. What do you expect from web users this time around? Uh, and web companies and web companies because they too. were aggressive. Reed Hastings, some others. of them were aggressive. Right. Well, I'm hoping that there'll be the similar response uh, out of Silicon Valley. Uh, on net neutrality that there was on the executive orders uh, on immigration. Yeah, we're going to get to immigration. Yeah, second, well, but, 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 you know, I mean, there, there was a vocal, uh, strong statement, and I'm hoping that, that tech leaders will do that. And I'm hoping individuals in the, on, the, on the web will realize how much influence they have. You know, I've, I've said this at town halls. People can often have more influence th- uh, by sending a clever tweet or putting something on Facebook than I can if I go on the House floor and give a speech on C-SPAN that 500 people watch. You never has, you better start tweeting. You know, well, <laughs> you hear yeah. the president's doing it. You no, know, no, I tweet, but but you know, but, <laughs> but the, are you a good tweeter, bro? Well, I, I don't have your sense of humor. Oh, that's I mean, true. You <laughs> so, I uh, you know, but I 
But that's there, there's there's never been a time where actually a citizen is more empowered in this country, and 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 so if they get online and if they mobilize and if they start targeting uh, members of Congress who are not going to be strong in net neutrality, they can have a huge impact. Sure. What do you think about Chairman Pai, by the way? What's your take on him so far as the leader of the FCC? I think he's one of the worst picks possible uh, in government. Wow. And, wow. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I mean I, I, did you see the charter decision? I mean, it it was just. Talk a little bit about that because yeah, explain not know. to people what that yeah, is. Yeah, it, it was just it's it's appalling. Charter, first of all, they're like four internet service providers that uh, give most Americans their choice of uh, access to to the internet. Now, I'm I don't know as much about uh, technology as some of the people I represent, but I know this much: we invented the internet, we invented a lot of broadband. Why are we paying five times more than people in Europe? I mean, it doesn't it defies no, common sense? The prices are astonishing, right? Like we invented this stuff and they're paying less. This is what drives ordinary uh, Americans crazy. Well, the reason is because it's basically monopoly here. There are four uh, companies that are providing uh, this service. So Pi has this decision. He says one of these companies, Charter, uh, they can't provide the service where Comcast is providing the service. They need to provide it somewhere else. Now, the justification, he says, is, well, there's so many communities that don't have this service. That's how he kind of justifies it. But the reality is what he's doing is basically carving up the map if you're an internet service provider, you provide to one region, yeah. if, you know, and no competition. And the people who suffer the most are actually Trump voters in rural America or people who can't, you know, they're the ones whose prices go up. They're the ones who are going to have to think, oh, do I keep, uh, do I subscribe to the internet or not? Do I get fast service? So he has really been just a mouthpiece for telecom companies in one of the most uh, economically concentrated industries in the country. And to reiterate, the worst, correct? The worst, the worst. one of the worst. <laughs> it, it pains me because, you know, usually just being Indian American, I have sort of a, a soft spot for other Indian Americans, a natural, because we have, don't have many folks in government. And, and I thought, okay, he seems... He seems he has this story. Uh, of course, when he we, went in opposite direction, opposite direction, and I knew, I knew you know, I, 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 not that I have anything against the Queen, but I knew we had a different take uh, when I was uh, tweeting out about my grandfather spending four years with uh, jail with Gandhi, and Ajit Pai was congratulating the the Queen in England on her ninety some oh. birthday. So <laughs> it was like we we it's came okay. from a different perspective. You know what? The gays don't always like each other. Me and Peter Thiel have a thing that's not good, so don't worry about it. You don't yeah. have to. <laughs> you can disagree with other. Indians. That's America. Um, it is. So when you think about that, what can be done? Because the, they might pack that, the FCC, and that's the, probably the most important agency for internet companies at this point. So I'm thinking it probably is, right? It's the most important telecom. It's the only one, really. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's a huge issue, and I think part of the, the challenge is it hasn't been on the headlines, right? The headlines have been uh, understandably about him taking away health care and him mm-hmm. uh, putting through uh, uh, Trump putting through wrong tax policies. Uh, and so this is kind of going a little bit underneath the the, the, the radar. Mm-hmm. And my hope is that some of the, the folks listening to your podcast or others can get uh, online and start making this a much bigger issue. There needs to be like with SOPA or PIPA, there needs mm-hmm. to be an organic... Oh, PIPA. You know, I yeah. miss Pippa. <laughs> I do not miss the Soap Pippa fight. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but that was a time where there was organic yeah. internet activism. Right. And we, we, we need that. And, and, and this is where I think folks shouldn't underestimate their own ability. Silicon Valley really has... Well, they did on healthcare. Healthcare. Yeah. Got, not oh. Silicon Valley, but the country yeah. calling in, doing town halls. I want to The next segment I want to talk about town halls, like how, whether you do them and whether you get yelled at, but which I, I like anyone yelling at a politician. 
no matter who they are. Um, does that happen later in the episode? Yeah, it does. Yeah, I'm gonna, I have a group outside that's going to come and yell at you. But I do want to get to immigration because you mentioned that. That was something where Silicon Valley initially approached the Trump administration in a prostrate position. I know prostate. you call it the walk of shame. Walk of shame, yes. That's and I said they're sheeple. I, I had a lot of opinions about that. Yeah. But I felt like they, the most powerful people in the world to, to do that was just astonishing without talking about immigration. And in fact, I had urged a bunch of the CEOs to say something before they went, just about immigration, just pick one that they could all, they could say, mostly they can't agree on lunch, but they can all agree that immigration is critical. And most, many of the CEOs of all these companies are from other countries or, star, or now are American citizens, but came here yeah. and have wonderful stories of, of uh, you know, Sergey, Sachin Nadella, Sundar sure. Pichai, right. whole bunches of people. And so they started off that, and then the immigration hit. Talk about where that is right now, because it looks like Trump has been blocked everywhere by the courts. But And then Silicon Valley did sort of rise up they did. in their interests, because these are workers. I don't think they're protesting all the people being shoved out of the country back to Mexico. I don't think that's—you're not hearing them on that issue. Well, to, to, the, to the credit, some of them have talked about the dreamers. Yes. and mm-hmm. I mean, I— I think that there there is, and I and I have been critical at times of the valley, but I but I think that they did step up when the uh, executive orders came Absolutely. out that were unconstitutional. Uh, they have stepped up on the on the DACA issue, and I think there is this this is a case case where we're uh, we so believe here that 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 an, a, a society that has people from uh, around the world uh, leads to innovation. Right. Uh, it leads to uh, a, a a greater. Uh, ability to, uh, to 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 invent and, and and pluralism is good. I mean, it's sort of like we have this Athens view of of America, and, and, and Trump has the Sparta view of America, mm-hmm. right? And so I think it's a heartfelt um, belief. Uh, now, are there excesses? I mean, I've said even on H one B visas, there shouldn't be companies that have fifty percent plus H one B visa employees. Or mm-hmm. uh, I rather give people green cards than having. H-1B visa folks be underpaid because they have to be here for eight years and their whole employment is contingent on uh, employers. So I think that there has to be sensible reform so that people, by and large, understand what that immigrants uh, are a strength to the country. And what do you imagine is happening next? Because it seems to have, they've seemed to have backed up, but there's legal things. Where do you move? You're talking about sensible reform. Where is that right now with the Trump administration? I assume you're talking to them about what to how this proceeds, or maybe you're not at all. Well, they, 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 uh, I'm talking at least to some of the Republicans. Look, Chaffetz has a, has a reasonable bill on— The kind, iPhone guy? Uh, is he, yeah. They, the yeah. <laughs> but he's got a bill which is bipartisan, which says let's get people more uh, green cards. We'll mm-hmm. move, move away from H-1B visas, get rid of the country quotas, let's expedite a green card. No reason we should be subsidizing people to get uh, a, a master's in this country or a Ph.D. and then having them go back and create those jobs overseas if they're— if Canada and Australia are offering uh, green cards for people to go there, we ought to have a green card. And I think most Americans actually would be uh, for that because they're not getting below market wages. I mean, the, the things that annoy uh, people is when you're hearing stories of uh, people being replaced one-to-one American workers, mm-hmm. and, and those aren't these uh, high-skilled new jobs. And so I, I think if we can reform some of that excess and really have a path towards a green card for people who really – uh, are going to be job creators, that's a way way forward. And and Trump, you know, like a lot of things, he's been all over the place. So where's, what's next on this? Well, I think next it's is— It's gotten quiet, but what, there's legal challenges, so it's nothing's going anywhere, essentially, until— Right, and I, I, I think next is uh, getting behind some of these reasonable bills in Congress and making, making the case that that rep- represents a consensus way forward, and then hoping that Trump picks one of his 
you know, he's he said every position on this, from banning everyone uh, to uh, having a, uh, a system which welcomes uh, people who are contributing to the economy. And you hope that uh, he gets behind a bipartisan bill in Congress. So you like pass it on Wednesday when he's feeling good about foreigners. <laughs> Although a lot of his campaign was about anti-foreigners, like they're taking our jobs. They're ta- you know some, some demonizing of, foreigners. Some of yeah, I mean some of I mean he was demonizing trade and and and, and foreigners and automation. I mean that and 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 the counties. Those are places uh, that message in part, I think, worked in, because we didn't have an alternative positive vision. We weren't out there talking about right. what jobs are we creating? How are we going to help uh, that area? And this is one, you know, one interesting thing in the polling is showed that Hillary Clinton was winning until the last three weeks when we made the election all about Trump. Trump's crazy. Trump's yeah. going to go nuclear. Trump's going to do this. And, um, you know, people, people vote for how you're going to help their lives. Yep. And my one concern is, as much as I'm uh, all for investigating Trump and the Russia connection, all that, I I think we've got to have a positive vision as a party. And I don't think that that vision is there in a compelling enough way no. for a lot of people in this country. And just look, when I lost to my conda, I said, what did I do wrong? How could I be better? Uh, you know, one of the things I, I cringed when I read one of my interviews in New York Times, and I said, every person of the future endorses me. I was like, gosh, did oh, I really yeah, say that? Bad. You know, I, they're and, not born. Yeah, you, you, know, so, you know, so so, and so I said, okay, I gotta I gotta self reflect. There are a lot of people I I didn't have enough uh, I, I didn't spend enough time and didn't, didn't think about what what their lives was like. I feel like the, we just lost a major election. Let's let's think about what we could do better. Did what, you really say that? I think I did. It's a New York Times. It was a bad quote. Are you are you worried though about some of the early things that the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, has done? It, it, it sort of seems to me that the first big changes the National Democrats made was to get a DNC chair who is out there trying to borrow some of Trump's rhetoric. Right? Tom Perez is out there, you know, very very strong attacks on Trump, strong attacks on Republicans. It just seems to me that like the lesson that Democrats have learned so far is that they should be aggressive in the way that they tweet or the way that they talk. So I have a contrarian perspective on this. Um, you know, remember when Marco Rubio was running against Trump and he went calling him small hands yep. and all that? Mm-hmm. I don't think you beat someone like Trump at his own game. No, he's so good at it. Because not just from a practical, just from a practical level, forget a moral level. I just think if you get into a street brawl with him, he'll win. So the Dalai Lama, and this was actually someone at the American Enterprise Institute who's conservative, Arthur Brooks, and he said, uh, he asked the Dalai Lama, uh, how do you uh, defeat uh someone hate or hate speech. And the Dalai Lama said, uh, with warm heartedness. Now, it could seem like naive, but uh, I don't think it is. I think the way you defeat Trump is by aspiration, by vision, by appealing to uh, people's uh, higher sense of self. And you know how I know this is true? Because the most successful speech in 2016 was Michelle Obama, when she said, when they go low, we go high. Democrats win when we have an aspirational message. John F. Kennedy even Bill Clinton when he ran, Barack Obama, uh, we're not going to be Trump getting in the gutter with him. We no. got to... Unless gotta, we have someone who's good at the gutter. Yeah. Um, all right, when we get back, we're talking more with Representative Ro Khanna, who represents Silicon Valley in Congress. This podcast is brought to you by SoFi. Think of standard employee benefits like 401k contributions, standing desks, and catered lunches, if you're really lucky. Those are all great, but if you want to seriously invest in yourself, why not ask your employer to check out student loan contributions and refinancing from SoFi? You can lower your interest and get your employer's help in paying down your student debt so you can start planning your financial future sooner. Visit SoFi.com slash at work to learn more. Terms and conditions apply. 
Loans originated by SoFi Lending Corp. and not available in all states. Visit SoFi.com slash legal for more information. We're here with Representative Ro Khanna, who represents Silicon Valley in Congress. And with me is RICO's political editor, Tony Rahm. And we're talking about where the country's going, where the Democratic Party's going, and more. And I think this last section, let's talk a little bit about what happens next, not just for the Democratic Party or anti-Trump, but what do you think the big issues of the future are? A lot of people are concerned about robots. Except Steve Mnuchin. Except Steve Mnuchin, who thinks that's not going to happen, but it is. Automation, AI, uh, self-driving cars, eliminating jobs. A lot of the stuff that's coming is a little scary for many people, including people who like the future. No, and it, it should be concerning. Now, I think there's a huge debate on the level of dislocation uh, because obviously in the you know John Maynard Keynes had written this famous article saying we'd all be working 15-hour work weeks but usually when we have technology uh, advance it creates also new opportunities more jobs uh, and the productivity gains uh, in the economy has not shown right now massive uh, displacement that said the displacement is taking place with low-income middle uh, middle-income workers so it's really hurting most uh, people uh, in areas that feel left behind. And I think that, to me, is, is the great challenge of the 21st century for our country, is as we go through this technology shift, as we know that this is going to hurt uh, a, a large number of folks, truck drivers, folks who had traditional jobs at, 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 at factories, how are we going to make sure that they have uh, and their kids have a shot at the American dream. Do you think that Washington has wrapped its head around precisely what you just said, this notion that, you know, it may not be tomorrow that we're talking about mass displacement, but inevitably we could face a world in which, you know, robots are putting, you know, closing factories and putting folks out of jobs. Do you think that your peers in Washington really understand this? I think the conversation around it has been too too simplistic because it's either like, oh, we're going to all live in the Jetsons and there's <laughs> not going to be work or it's uh, – well, uh, this is uh, Steve Munchen's comment. This is not an issue. And, and the reality is more complex. It's going to have some displacement effects uh, disproportionately on people who are already uh, in low and middle class income. It's going to have some employment uh, generating effects. And the question is, how do we transition? How do we anticipate the mix of 21st century jobs that are going to exist? And how do we prepare people for those jobs? Uh, you know, someone who's really thoughtful on this is Reed Hoffman, where he says, look, we need to rethink uh, what it means to, to, to have an education. Is it going to be a credential? Is it going to be uh, a, a particular skill? And employers need to rethink what types of skills they need to hire. So this is the conversation. It's a, such a bipartisan conversation. It's but not, you know. Who has that conversation? Now, last night, Sam Altman said that all repetitive work that does not create an emotional connection will be gone in the future. <laughs> and that's pretty much everything. That's no, I lawyers, I, accountants, doctor, lots of there's a lot of jobs that AI and robotics can yeah. take care of. Well, maybe half of Congress will be gone too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the hope. That's I, the dream. You know, I, I, you know, I, I'm, and Sam's a really thoughtful guy, but I'm, I'm hesitant if anyone predict. If John Maynard Keynes couldn't predict the future of work, I'm not sure Sam Altman can, can predict oh, it. Uh, 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 no, no, I like Sam. <laughs> Sam and Pie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, I love Sam, but, but, but you know, Sam's written stuff on software 
revolution and other things. But, I, but my point is we all, no one could predict the, the exact, I mean, economists are debating this. Is it going to create more jobs? Is it going to le- lower work hours or not? What type of work is going to be there? But here's what, we're, here's what I do know, that you ought to have uh, local communities uh, getting people together saying, okay, what are our assets in these communities? Uh, how can we get people to, w- with business, the types of skills that can at least get them employment? How can we fund this type of uh, activity? And uh, how can we do our best to understand that the type of work uh, force is going to change and the needs are going to change? And how can we be respectful? Because not every, you know, you can't just talk about it as like uh, in, in a way that conveys status, that somehow if you work in tech, you're better than the poet or the, mm-hmm. or the teacher. I mean, there's this uh, technological optimism, which is great, but technology, I mean, there was an article in the New York Times, Eric Berjoffelson, who I mentioned, who said technology is not destiny. Technology is a tool. It's Absolutely. All, it's always been a tool from yeah. a spear to everything. But you can, you cannot deny, when we get self-driving cars, you got to go, uh-oh. Like, you think about insurance and drivers and everybody. There's, you know, we had the head of Walmart on stage at Code a couple of years ago, and he was talking about retail stores. This is the head of Walmart that don't exist. He said, maybe we don't have stores. If the head of Walmart is saying that, you know, you think about the ideas behind it. You have smaller stores, more online. You have Amazon really dominating commerce. There's very clear, and there I just bought a company called Kiva that's doing warehouse automation that's astonishing. So you, you, there are definite, like, uh-ohs. Absolutely. Like, all over the place. And it's not, a, it's not little. It's sort of like, it's, it reminds me sort of of seeing a car for the first time sort of wandering down your lane when you have the cars and going, oh, wait a minute, this could affect horses. Maybe so with, you know. And it did open up more jobs, obviously, road building and right. gas stations and all kinds of stuff. But who's thinking of those things? Is it you? Who should be thinking of those things? Well, we, we need more than me, but it's one of the reasons I ran, because mm-hmm. I thought that people out here are thinking about those things. And the question is, also, how do we create the dignity of work, right? Because it's not enough to say, okay, some people are going to create the money, and then let's just give everyone a, 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 a check. Right. I mean, I'm I'm supportive of uh, efforts to increase the earned income tax credit, which would give a wage increase for folks who now are having a tougher time getting 40-hour weeks and making sure. So I think there there are two parts to it. One is for someone who's 45 or 50 or 55. The idea that we're suddenly going to retrain them and yeah. they're going to have a new job um, can come off as as as, as insensitive. Um, you know, do you think? Uh, I mean, let me. If so, my wife will tell you, if if someone tried to retrain me to be a mechanic, I don't think she would ever recommend anyone hire me. I I don't have those mm-hmm. skills, right? So how can you just say that? Okay, we're going to retrain people at and even older to to do these things. So for them, I think we have to say, okay, they're not working the same amount of hours. Their wages are stagnating. How do we create uh, a, a expanded? How do we help them with their wages? How do we help them with health care? How do we help them with retirement security? And then how do we help their kids have a shot at the types of jobs that are going to exist? And 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 they're you know let's consider driverless cars. I mean. Uh, the question, uh, driverless trucks, are we still going to have any truck driver in there to, for regulations? I mean, uh, I don't know. We have autopiloted planes, and yet we still have a pilot. Uh, are we going to, or maybe we don't, maybe it'll be fully automated, in which case do we need people loading and unloading? No. Um, if, if, if we don't need Eventually, that? Eventually, no. Eventually, no, maybe. I mean, I mean, we can pretend we do, but yeah, it's but really no. Then who's doing the... Uh, who's doing the software? Who's doing? Uh, are there efficiencies that are created by that, and the other industries that are spawned? Well, I do think he's right about emotional connection. Sometimes we want a waiter or we want a, a doctor that speaks to us, but a lot of like radiology, not so much. The computers are, be- are can be better, like eventually will be better. And so you think about that in terms of 
things we do now that we wouldn't use people for, that we used to use people all the time for. Right. You know what I mean? There are tons of jobs now that we just don't use people for because it's not as efficient. Yeah, but there's there are time there's digital art, there's graphics, yes, there's there there um there's still the creativity. That's what he's saying. Emotional yeah. connection is creativity. It's, okay. it's whoever's creative. So two answers to that are universal basic income, which Sam is doing over and and said yesterday is moving from a hundred families to a thousand. And that's essentially communism, as far as I can tell. I, you know what I mean? Like giving them money. And the second one is on-demand jobs, which are all kinds of problems around them, around healthcare, around rights, around protections. So talk about each of those solutions. So the on the universal basic income, uh, the, the bill I have, which is one of the most uh, pushing the envelope proposals, would say, let's have a trillion dollar expansion of the earned income tax credit, okay. uh, which is probably the closest move towards a universal income without divorcing it from work, mm-hmm. which would basically provide a 20% wage increase to the bottom 20% of uh, American households. Uh, whose wages have stagnated from 1979. So instead of giving Trump's $3 trillion tax break to the investor class, why don't we give money to folks who actually uh, are making between thirty dollars and 70000 Now, here's the, here's the challenge with that. I mean, Trump's policies may actually uh, be better for the stock market uh, in terms of the, a temporary bump. Uh, this policy would be better for uh, getting people to spend money, growing the economy, growing jobs. And so the question is, what do we want to value in, as, as a country, as a, uh, economic GDP growth and, and jobs? And, uh, and how do we get people uh, some economic security in a time where hours are being, being cut? Second to that, though, we do have to think about what are the types of jobs uh, that, uh, that, that people are doing? I mean, the example I gave of Flex, which is using cloud software to help manufacturers uh, become more efficient and giving them greater capacity. Well, they'll tell you that manufacturers will say that their biggest need isn't right now. Uh, biggest concern isn't that there are no robots. They're saying they don't have the skilled employee base. I mean, if you actually talk to these manufacturers, they need people who uh, understand manufacturing, but also are uh, proficient at some of the, the technology. So for the the immediate uh, needs should be figuring out what employers going and talking to them saying what type of work do you need and how do we get people these skills and and it's it's a challenge because a lot of the conception of work has changed right there are a lot of people who would say that uh, what i do all day uh, well, probably most americans will say it's about me which is that it's not real work he just goes he talks to people he sends emails he like he's not getting his hands dirty he's not it's not it's not um grueling actual work and so the and, and and people are proud of this right i mean the coal miners i met in appalachia they, they were proud of the work ethic of, of a hard day's work and so the question is how do you keep get people to, to to see that there still can be dignity and hard work but it may be uh more uh with the use of, of technology all right so ubi what do you think of it I think it's it's good if it's connected to work, but not divorcing it from work. Right. I, I don't think divorcing it from work uh, is the right message, uh, and I don't. It looks like a handout. It looks like a handout, and it it's. Uh, uh, but but if it's connected, but you can get pretty far connecting it to work. And I, I uh, you know, I urge folks to look at the trillion dollar proposal. And I'm trying to get Sherrod Brown on it in the Senate, and I think that's a step in in that direction without disconnecting it. And from sharing work. economy. Well, the, the sharing economy in terms of, uh, you know, again, this is the challenge there is, of course, you don't have unionization, you don't have, uh, so, which is, which is the, the reality, which is why I think having this expanded earned income tax credit, where folks are working 20 hours, 25 hours, they don't have the same, uh, same benefits, they don't, then that can be a wage supplement uh, for them. 
Uh, but I but I, but I do think also that just because you're let's say Uber or others doesn't allow you to yes, say let's pick on Uber. Well, That's I mean, <laughs> it doesn't allow you. I don't understand for the life of me what connection Uber's application has to do with the classification of someone's an employee or an independent contractor. Like that's an age old thing. Like don't pretend that you're making some innovation by treating someone as an independent contractor. I mean, someone could just do a business model treating people as independent contractors. And this is, I think, one of the challenges for Silicon Valley. I believe most of the folks I've met, they're brilliant, they're hardworking, they're innovative, they're doing great things. And I think they're well-intentioned, but so much, they're creating so much wealth. They're creating so much success be mindful and cognizant of making sure that everybody is, is, is succeeding from it. So if you have to pay people a little bit more, if you have to bend over backwards on a close call and treat people as employees, if you have to uh, say to contractors, hey, let's make sure people are getting a decent wage, let's, let's do that. We have the wealth. Sure, but how realistic are these things in the short term, right? Like, I'm pretty sure it takes the House uh, sometimes months <laughs> to name a post office, much less, you know, reconsider, uh, you know, the government's benefit structure, the way we deal with health insurance and unemployment insurance and the trillion-dollar package that um, I think you have said in previous interviews, uh, you know, is unlikely to happen in the near term. So, so talk a little bit about the prospects for all of this and what actual time horizon we're talking about here. It's going to take time, but... Um but so does anything worth doing in politics. And, and partly it should take time because we're a messy democracy of 300 million people. And you wouldn't want someone like Ro Khanna saying, I've got a great idea, let's do it tomorrow. You, you want, I mean, there may be a huge flaws in my idea. There, it should be vetted, it should be debated. That's, that's part of the whole constitutional process. That's, that's, now, there are times where I get frustrated the political stuff seems so much at gridlock. But if you look at American history, most things worth doing have taken years, they've taken decades. And that's, I think, one of the, the lessons that Silicon Valley uh, needs to realize, that the pace of politics is much slower than the pace of the valley because they're different enterprises. So do, you, do you think part of the problem, though, is that so many other folks in Congress are constantly out at town halls and things talking to their voters as though these changes that we're discussing in the economy don't exist, that these factories mm-hmm, can be mm-hmm. protected, that these jobs can be protected. Is that the problem here, that, that we're all kind of lying to ourselves and like, that makes like, it? Like a factory, an Apple factory in Kansas is going to sell it. It's 500 jobs. No. Yeah. no. It'll well, be a nice photo op, but yeah. really. Yeah. Well, photo ops and symbolism matter as carriers. Yeah. We, could, we could do a few more of those, but I agree. that. Uh, but but I say, I, I'll say two things on that. One is... Without naming names, I was in this meeting and it was with some of my colleagues, and they said, we can't talk about uh, innovation jobs because it's scary to people, and, and, and we can't talk about tech jobs. And I said, before Donald Trump ran, people would have told you that he was crazy to say that we can bring back coal and manufacturing, and that's just not possible. But he sold the entire country on that vision because he had the conviction of his wrong ideology to say, here's what I believe, here's what I'm going to do. We, I think, are, we have the right message that there are a transformation of jobs, that the 21st century mix of jobs is going to look different than the 20th century. Let's go sell people on that vision. That's what leadership is about. Let's not, people will respond to strong leadership. What they don't, and by the way, if my ideas are wrong, so be it. They'll vote me out of office. Let's have 15 people try to sell their vision. One of them will catch on. So are you going to try to sell that vision to town halls this year? You I, I haven't. I, I tried to sell How it. How are your town halls going? They're, they're good. They're 900 people, 700 people. They're, uh, people are uh, 
you know, one person got upset at me because I said Trump is a blip in uh, American history and, uh, you know, we'll be fine as a country. And they said, look, you can't call him a blip. He's an existential threat to our democracy. I said, well, look, uh, you know, the, the democracy is working. But they're, they're p- passionate. I love them. They're, people are holding you accountable for every word you say. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're saying, why aren't you co-sponsoring this bill? You know, one of the interesting things is a lot of young folks have come up to me at these town halls and saying, I want to go into journalism, which I've never heard before. So uh, it, it's it's created a, a type of a civic activism. But yeah, to, there is more, yeah. more of that. Are you having angry town halls? I think the Republicans are having the angry ones, right? They're having, they're having more of the angry ones. I mean, I'm having town halls where there's as criticism too, which is right. which is good, but um, but they're not angry. They're, it's a, How do you feel about the impact of social media then? Because that's where a lot of the noise is, and a lot of the strength too. There's a lot going on. I think it does impact Congress. I think a lot of uh, the sort of the circle of journalism, town halls, social media is sort of very strong right now among everybody. Like everyone's paying attention. How do you think that impacts and, and what Trump is doing around Twitter and, and things like that? Personally, I think social media, I think it's great that more people are engaged, more people are involved. Um, ultimately, you know, I'm, I'm more of a like John Stuart Mill view that once ideas are out there in the long run, the truth prevails. And I think that uh, the fact that more people have access to information today, uh, that, more pe- that it's easier to get your voice out in, in American democracy than ever before is ultimately going to be a good thing for, for our our country. I know that there temp- there's this sense of fake news and, and, and other things, but I'm not sure that uh, the alternative, which was let's have our news from three Walter Cronkites, three white guys, is, yeah. is a better world. I, I'd rather take the chances point. for uh, fake news now in a long-run world where uh, someone from Africa gets to criticize uh, American foreign policy. What do you think then about the role companies play there in that fake news problem? Do you think that they should do more like a Facebook or a Google, or do you think that they need to be hands-off for precisely the reasons you just mentioned? I think to the extent that they provide platforms that are the most open to providing people with uh, menus of options, they that's that's what their role should be, trying to you know, I've heard of senses, okay, if you get one news article, give people an option to go to matching news articles if they want. But I certainly don't think that they should be wading in in, in trying to give people a certain perspective or content. So Facebook context. shouldn't be out there, you know, taking off conservative news websites that, you know, may be publishing things that, you know, aren't the best account of what happened uh, in the course of a day? I don't think that's uh, because because ultimately... If they start doing that, first of all, they'd probably start losing a lot of conservatives for even, Which happens. Which happened at one point. even using it. And, and ultimately, we, we should try to be uh, expanding, uh, expanding speech, uh, expanding the, uh, the, the scope of things that people are, are exposed to. And so to the extent that they can make these platforms more open, uh, you know, Vivek Wadwa had this suggestion of uh, giving matching content of the opposing side or things that I'm, I'm open to, but not in a way that would in any way look like they're censoring things. Although I think there's a differentiator between these boiler rooms. Come on, there's yeah. boiler rooms of people making money. This is like spam. Right, it's yeah, no. I mean, and I, they should remove it only because the, the experience is bad. It's actually false. You know, it's, yeah, it's, if it's discernibly false. And they do it with advertising, so why not? Sure. I mean, I, and, and or sort of if there's hate speech or incentive to violence. or I mean, there are areas, I think, uh, or if there's total spam. I mean, I, I think those are legitimate areas. But obviously that's... That's that's their uh, you know their decision. I'm saying that as a my personal viewpoint. Yeah. Do you uh, think social media impacted this election? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that it impacted it in a in a way that uh, that the traditional campaigns didn't didn't anticipate. That uh, 
I think it allowed a lot more people to have a voice. I think it allowed a lot more people to question the establishment, which were all good things. Uh, but I think uh, the campaigns that used it as a tool were were more effective. Uh, used it as a tool well. well I mean, Trump it is tool. like a Twitter savant. He really is. As and much it, as you might hate his tweets, they're fantastic. And, well, the, the thing and, that— and I hate to say that, but they're really—they're effective for him. Well, the thing that uh, makes them effective, I think, is an authenticity, yes. right? And and, and, it, and and I disagree. I couldn't disagree more with Trump's worldview, but he's been— when someone had said to me, well, oh, he had a spelling mistake in there, and they were yeah. laughing about it. I said, I have spelling mistakes in my tweets. You know what that oh. tells people? That tells them that it's not a staff for writing it. He's mm-hmm. probably writing it himself. And I think the, the key to uh, social media is it's made a world of greater authenticity. I mean, the biggest thing in politics, I think, is now have real ideas, have some convictions, put it out there, and, you know, let it be what it's going to be. But mm-hmm. people want to see... Uh, a boldness and authenticity and, and something that's not just the status quo and social media, I think, has, has made that partly possible. So last question. Uh, Tony will have a last one, too. Um, what do you think your most important thing to focus in on right now is as a, as a congressman? You, you, the earned income tax credit. What else? What other thing do you think you really need to, to deliver to your constituents? Well, that's a that's two different uh, okay. questions. On delivering to the constituents, a lot of local issues. You know, there's airport noise in my district. There's a landfill that's creating odor. I mean, there's, you know, your job as a congressman, as as Tony will tell you, is first local and and right. really uh, meet the, the the needs of the community. As a as a as a representative of Silicon Valley, I believe uh, there has to be a way of giving aspiration to people across this country that they can view technology as a positive. Let me give you a very brief anecdote. My nephew came, uh, my, my wife's nephew, to visit us for a week, uh, and it, he, uh, we got him Adele tickets, we got him A's tickets. He was so excited. He was from Ohio uh, that he got to go see Facebook and Google and, and, and a tour of that. And um, he wants to be a, a professional football player. I've told him at the age of 12 that there's one Indian American who's ever done that, Brandon Schiller. His odds mm-hmm. are probably not as good. But think about how many kids across this country dream about playing professional football, mm-hmm. professional basketball, uh, and uh, they're bought in. Only 700 kids get to do it, only 2,000 in the NFL. we got to get people across this country believing that they can be part of a technology future, that that's going to work for uh, their families uh, in, in an empowering way. And if I can help shape the positive narrative of what technology is doing and uh, get people to feel that they can be part of this and, and the policy that will allow them to be part of this, I think that's the biggest contribution I can make uh, into public service. The flip side of that is, you know, the voter side of this. You know, if you're a voter right now who's unhappy with the current state of affairs with the Trump administration, are you really stuck for the next few years waiting out this administration? What do you do? How do you use your you know, position in Silicon Valley to, to, to maybe change things if you're quite unhappy right now? I think you've you've never had a a, a bigger uh, voice. Uh, one is uh, the tweets you do, the blogs you do, the uh, sharing of social media. That is making an impact. Trust me, members of Congress and others uh, will it, it look if something is going viral. If there's they'll look at the tweets. They'll I, I do. If they're not, they're out of touch. I mean, there's so I think as a citizen, you have extraordinary impact, partly to even shape the thinking of the Democratic Party, right? I mean, so fine, it's it, 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 the platform, it's, it, it's like a chaos right now in terms of uh, a void of, 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 uh, in Washington, and we have to fill it. We have to, I mean, Trump has blown up the system. When he's talking about $3 trillion of 
uh, tax cuts or a trillion dollars of infrastructure. And, you know, Obama did 50 billion of infrastructure, right? So uh, the fact that he's talking about three trillion now, I can talk about trillion dollars of EITC. So there is this whole void in Washington that's looking for ideas. And I think people can ha start to fill that uh, in, in a positive way to help the Democrats uh, construct a positive agenda. The second thing, of course, they can do is uh, engage in activism, uh, and which they have. In, in Kansas, uh, we almost won that seat, a seven-point loss with a guy, Bernie supporter, running. Close. Uh, the DNC close. missed it. Tom Perez, I mean, he's fine, but he didn't put a dollar into that race. The DCCC missed it. You know who, who supported that guy? It was all people online. Mm -hmm. uh, John Ossoff uh, in Georgia, that's been, he's gotten uh, more money than I'll raise, uh, you know, in my career as Congress, because they're two, in two months because he, of, of online activism. So there is this huge ability for people to uh, participate. And I think one of the, we can end on this. No, one of the things that people always ask me is, oh, what is the Democratic Party doing? What is the, what is our strategy? As if, uh, you know, I have some insight into this room where the strategy oh, no. is being. like a goat rodeo, I'm guessing. You know, right? but. Cat rodeo or something. Like, <laughs> something. I, I, I imagine it's completely disorganized. It's, That's how I look at it. And, and, and partly because it's, it's, it, it's so messy out there. It's like you are the Democratic Party. You're the, you're the folks who are shaping the agenda and the people in, in Washington are kind of reacting to that and helping uh, shape that. So uh, don't underestimate the impact you can have both to shape the platform of our party and, and the candidates. And in that vein, I'm going to ask one last question. Is there a techie you think should run or will run? I mean, Zuckerberg's talking about president. I'm For not president? So sure. I don't, I'm pretty sure Cheryl Sandberg's not running. You know, I, I but who like uh, Howard Schultz or uh, uh, who who should run? So I have a, a counterintuitive view that I, I think it would be great for them to run for governor, or senator, or Congress, or as long as they don't run against me, hopefully. But <laughs> they, <laughs> they should. Uh, but but I I think uh, you know partly Kitty Dukakis uh, with, uh, with with Dukakis had uh, said uh, the presidency is is not an entry level job. And there is something to be said for having some level of public service before uh, trying to lead the country. And I think the reaction to Trump on the Democratic side, if we're going to go with an outsider, it would be much more likely to go with someone like a Robert Reich uh, type figure who has mm -hmm. engaged in public service and serious economic thought uh, than uh, someone who has not uh, had a track record. People usually like the opposite. And I think Trump shows that just having a business mindset to things uh, is uh, is missing so much of public service. So yeah, but I, you know, everyone was like, "Hmm, I have I, a billion dollars." Yeah, and, and and they can all they can all run. I don't I, I don't think they see I don't think the grassroots I don't think they're they may need to go out to the town halls and see where the energy and the grassroots energy of the people who are actually going to vote in the primaries in New Hampshire and in Iowa is, and uh, and a lot of that energy is going to be. Uh, suspicious, actually, of just people who've made a ton of money in the corporate world. They're going to want folks who have a track record of, of service. One of the things that Bernie Sanders, you know, what got him the attention he did uh, is people went and Googled his speeches and they said, wow, this guy's been do fighting for the same thing since 30 yeah. years ago. He was being arrested for civil rights. He was, mm -hmm. And so there's, I think that is the counter to, to Trump. I'm not saying it may not be an outsider, but it's probably going to be an outsider uh, who uh, has really thought deeply about public service and had a track record of public service. Yeah, he's also adorable, Bernie Sanders.
Yeah. <laughs> no, you should have him on podcast. Oh, uh, we will. <laughs> he has his own podcast yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, He's I starting to trend, Karen. Yeah, <laughs> I know. A... No, 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 no. Anyway, Ro, this has been really helpful. This is really fascinating, and I could talk for a very long time with you. Um, we're here with Representative Ro Khanna, who represents Silicon Valley, and he's talked about a range of things. And thank you, Tony, for coming on. Tony Rom, who thanks. is our political editor at Recode. Um, it was great talking to both of you, and thanks for coming by. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with investor Bijan Sabat, Code 2040 founder Laura Weidman Powers, and the founders of Crooked Media, John Favreau, Tommy Vieter, and my husband, John Lovett. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Digital Media, the company that distributes this show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor, Chris Basil. And thank you to our producer, Eric Johnson. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. And we have some good news for our listeners. This week, there'll be a bonus episode of Recode Decode. If you're listening to this episode the week it comes out, then you should look for a bonus episode on Wednesday. Tune in then. <laughs>